Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to HBO's Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say flash, you say thunder. This podcast is a celebration of HBO's Band of Brothers as it turns 20. That's right. The epic, groundbreaking, genre-changing miniseries created by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks in the wake of Saving Private Ryan is two decades old. September the 9th, 2001 was the exact date it premiered on HBO, unfurling ten intricately plotted episodes upon the viewing public. Based on historian Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers book, with its arc following the journey of Easy Company, 2nd Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division US Army, from its inception at boot camp at Camp Tekoa, Georgia, all the way to the Eagle's Nest and the end of the Second World War in Europe. The show, with its impressive budget of $125 million, was at the time of shooting the most expensive in television history. And its scope, as a result, is astounding. Forged by the best writers, directors, cinematographers, set designers, hair and makeup artists, and on and on, breathing life into a script that contained over 500 speaking parts, most of which are handed out to a cast of then unknowns, who undertook an intense 10 month production period surrounded by more than 10,000 extras. Band of Brothers has proceeded to become a beloved piece of television, revered around the world for the quality of its acting, the audacious historic sweep of narrative, and the show's commitment at its heart to honouring the legacy of a fading breed of American heroes. Yet its own journey was no straight line. Within 36 hours of Band of Brothers' debut, September the 11th occurred an event which altered the course of global history. And while those attacks cast a shadow that initially muted America's reception to the show, Band of Brothers' singular brilliance has proceeded to empower a popularity that unbelievably seems to grow year on year. This is a series that millions of diehard viewers watch on HBO Max on an annual recurring basis, allowing the show to reinforce their understanding of and gratitude for the generation who pulled the world back from the brink of destruction. I'm amongst them. I watch Band of Brothers every year and I find that every time I watch the series, I notice a new detail, find a new depth of meaning, a line that passed me by suddenly resonates as truth. Indeed, last year, when COVID crippled both my city of birth, Liverpool, England, and my adopted hometown of Manhattan. I sat down with my youngest son, Oz. He was 10 then. And we reveled in episode after episode on a nightly basis. Against the backdrop of chaos and panic of our present day reality, I wanted my son to immerse himself in something which embodied the idea of American leadership I grew up admiring from afar. And Band of Brothers is exactly that. A show filled with empathy, courage, everyday heroism, and the follow me ethos, which is to me all that's great about this nation. There's so much to celebrate about Band of Brothers, and over the next 10 weeks, we will do exactly that. We're going to follow the course of the series one episode at a time with the help of the stars, creators, writers, directors, and producers 
who made the series a reality 20 years ago, including Damian Lewis, Major Richard Winters, Ron Livingston, Captain Lewis Nixon, and Donnie Wahlberg, the soulful second lieutenant, Carwood Lipton. For all of us, it's been the wonder of a lifetime to make this podcast series and immerse ourselves in the memory of Easy Company and allow their astonishing feats to live on. And also, to revel in the Band of Brothers creators' commitment to authenticity with which they serve their story. A story lived out by the paratrooper axiom. Hitler made only one big mistake when he built his Atlantic Wall. He forgot to put a roof on it. We kick things off with the perfect human being to launch this celebratory series, the gent who was the show's co-creator, along with Steven Spielberg. He dreamed of bringing Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers book to life and then made it real, producing, writing, directing and even starring in episode five as an extra to help fill out the background of a scene. When my guest picked up the Peabody Award for the series, he talked of, quote, the values that have made Band of Brothers soar in the imagination, his desire to be true to the stories, the realities, the emotional traumas these men witnessed, survived or succumbed to. Thank the old gods and the new he did and created a vessel that's been so vital in ensuring the greatest generation's legacy would live on in the hearts and minds of TikTok America. It's a joy to welcome Mr. Tom Hanks. Well, hello, TikTok America. <laughs> that's that's a little flowery but i'll take it all thank you thank you i can tell by your accent that you're english i ride with team america now tom <laughs> tom 20 years since band of brothers debuted has that time gone fast or slow so wicked fast it always seems to be the case there is no way to slow any of this down it's only when we begin to ponder a couple of individual images from the time that it becomes somehow dated. We were shooting this at the turn of the millennium. We began working on all of this way back in the 1900s, as I like to say, which now seems like an awfully long time ago. And in fact, then it premiered at the time of 9-11, when the attacks on the destruction of the World Trade Center in the Pentagon. And also, I had kids who were little, teeny, tiny back then, and now they're all grown up. So it's gone by very quick. When did you last watch the show? Because I'm fascinated. When you do watch it now, what do you see? We lived this for so long, the better part of three years, that I only catch it now in individual spurts. There's a couple of times a year where it plays in heavy rotation. One of them is certainly around June, June 6th, the DA anniversaries. Another one is around the American Veterans Day, which is in November, and also around the 4th of July. I might be going through the grid and landing upon it, or one of my kids might be saying, hey, Dad, look what's on. And I am transported back to some sort of meeting or moment or conversation I had with somebody about that very specific moment that is being shot. I can remember it more in piecemeal of individual beats as opposed to the grand putting together of the story because every one of the beats was a very specific construct, a very specific entry into like the deck of cards. I don't necessarily see part of the story, but I see the seven of clubs or I see the jack of diamonds in the deck of 52. Then along with that, almost always comes along a moment or a person on screen shows up that has gone off and done marvelous things in the 20 years since. We had people that were just out of their drama schools. And it's one of their early jobs, Damian Lewis, certainly. But then up comes Tom Hardy, a few other folks that have since gone on to great things. So I will tell you, it's a bittersweet experience. It's hard to watch because of well, because of everything that we poured into it and also the celebration of the 
lives that it affected. There are still Band of Brothers reunions that happen every anniversary from when they began their boot camp. And now a lot of those guys are married and they have kids. And Easy Company shows up at all the weddings and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties for the little kids that didn't exist back in 1999 when we started shooting. A lot of life, Tom. A lot of life. But I want to start with the genesis of the series. You teamed up with Steven Spielberg on Saving Private Ryan, which won five Oscars in 1999. The film itself, groundbreaking. Second World War movies had begun to be shot and released before the war itself had even ended. In 1941, President Roosevelt ordered Hollywood to valorise the war effort, to almost John Wayne heroise the thing. Private Ryan began to strip away that mythology. What made you and Steven Spielberg say, you know what? We want to do more. Saving Private Ryan was the first movie about the subject matter in, I would say, years that just dealt with the subject matter. There had been war movies that had become genre films, sort of like heist movies, or it had really been not since the 60s that there had been a movie about very specifics of the war, particularly war in Europe. And when Stephen first talked to me about doing the movie, I mean, we're both huge readers of history, studies of history, and constantly compare notes on the documentaries and books that we've read. And what had happened with that is that the motion picture technology had become more or less what it is today with CGI. And that alone, I said, you'll be able to shoot Omaha Beach and the D-Day invasion in a way that it's never been done before with a verisimilitude and an accuracy. And the audiences will be able to take it because of the tastes that have changed. And so the purpose of that was really to do a double whammy of the details, grim as they are, of the specifics of a place like Omaha Beach, and then the human aspects of essentially finding a kid so that he can go home. When that entered into the social vernacular, there was interest from the American Broadcasting Company to do a miniseries based on a Stephen Ambrose book. We had used his D-Day as one of the primers and Bibles of Saving Private Ryan. And along came also then Citizen Soldiers, his second book, in which a lot of the same characters then are followed throughout the rest of the war. Stephen told me about that. I said, you know, I don't think that's the book to do. <laughs> I said, what? Uh, I said, look, there's another book that Ambrose wrote called Band of Brothers, and it's about a very specific group of people. And it follows them all through the war. And I also don't think ABC is the place to do it because you'll have to have commercials and there'll be standards and practices and there'll be any number of themes as well as very specific movie-making moments that you will not be able to create because of censoring. I had had a history with HBO because I had done another big miniseries for them called From the Earth to the Moon. And I said, HBO is the place for this because you can show anything you want and it can last as long as it needs to and you don't have to have commercials. And Stephen turned on a dime, God bless him, and said, well, then let's go. And then from that came the agreement from HBO to say, well, look, if you're going to do this, do it big. <laughs> they gave us the budget. They gave us the time. But they also gave us the freedom and the wherewithal to go in deeper into individual moments. I mean, HBO agreed to 10 episodes, which is actually much more than 10 hours. I think altogether it was more like 11 hours of television to say, make it last for 10 weeks. This was an extraordinary alliance. And then the question that begins, well, how deep do we go into all of this? There are certainly characters in order to follow, but there's also the overreaching theme, which is different a bit from Saving Private Ryan and a different bit from everything else is because these guys were paratroopers. They were volunteers. They had to win the wings. They had to prove themselves in order to be accepted into the paratroopers. And so there's a bit of an elite force kind of thing to them, along with the reality of saying, and oh, by the way, we essentially shove you out of a plane and you land and then you try to get your job done. So wanting to do it happens again and again to me and I think to Stephen as well, is that we learn something in one experience and we learn so much that we're not able to bring to the screen, that the desire then was to continue on and find an alliance like with HBO and say, I think we have about 11 hours of truly rock and sock and stuff that we can bring to the screen, but it's going to be a little expensive. And they said, okay. You're like, no, Band of Brothers. 
That's the book. What did you see in that narrative when you first read it? What leapt out at you? Was it the scope of the story that you would then be able to take a viewer all the way from D-Day to Eagle's Nest at the end of the war in Europe? Really, the essence of the GI experience. It was that very narrative that we took these guys from the barracks in the United States in Georgia and we deposited them literally at Eagle's Nest. We didn't have to invent anything. The narrative was all in place. All of the logic was there. They did well. They did poorly. They were literally in the great places throughout, certainly Normandy in their landing zones. But then they failed miserably in misguided market garden. And then they had to drive in to be surrounded in the Battle of the Bulge. They had to continue on, and they were literally sweeping across Germany up to the war's end. So it was the perfect laying out of locale and character development that was also extraordinary because there were some guys who didn't get a scratch on them, and we had them from the first beat until the very last. The scope of what Easy Company and the 506th experienced was a bit of a gift for us because we never had to create a narrative out of whole cloth. We always had it in hand. And while we were in the pursuit of it, because it was such a hurly-burly in order to do it, we were always writing future episodes at the same time that we were shooting one. And in the research and work that we would do on, say, episode three, we would find out something that we could then put into episode six or episode seven, particulars about a number of the characters, for example, that were outside the boundaries of the actual book. We had the veterans themselves saying, well, I didn't do that, but I did this. And then when we find out about that, he did that. Well, holy cow, we hadn't even imagined that. And we were able to then put it into the later episodes. It was a living and breathing screenplay process at the same time that was always growing. So the excitement of it was that it wasn't trapped into a bell jar that we were just trying to cherry pick for wonderful moments. We had an overarching, literally, if you will, a table of contents and a map of where they had been and what they had done. And we were always filling this in with wickedly great details that ended up making it a lot more human. At the same time, extraordinary what these young guys did and said. One of the big things that we landed upon in the course of doing it all was there was always going to be a accompanying documentary that were the men of EC Company. We went back and they were all alive. They were all talking. And we had an extraordinary experience making the interviews of the actual men themselves, oftentimes in their homes and oftentimes asking them questions and getting them to talk about subjects that they had never spoken of, even with their own families. They all think that, oh, a movie crew is in this small town in Texas or Louisiana, and so everybody's excited about the movie crew coming. So the family would be around, the cousins, the nephews, and folks next door would be coming by to look at all the equipment as they're setting up the interview in the living room of a veteran's house. And we find out, no, they didn't care about the movie cameras or the lights. They wanted to hear what the veteran was going to be talking about because he had never told these stories before. Everywhere you would look, you would see dead people, you know, dead soldier there, here, ours, theirs. Then civilians besides dead uh, animals. So death was all over. Parts of those interviews were then incorporated thematically into the beginning of each one of our episodes. Guys said, well, you jump out of airplanes. You know, you got all your army equipment, and you jump out of airplanes by, uh, to fight the enemy. They said, go to hell. Nobody put up their hands. And then I don't know what it was, brought it up, but the, the guy giving the, the speech was saying, but you get paid $50 a month more. So that made it 100 bucks. We didn't identify who they were. They were just these old guys talking in their natural accents and their natural cadences, telling some sort of story about something that happened to them early on, back during the war. We don't know who they are. But by the time the series was ended, we realized who was Wild Bill Garnier. I'm just one part of the big war, that's all. One little part. And I'm proud to be a part of it. Sometimes it makes me cry. Who was Carwood Lipton? Henry V was talking to his men. He said, from this day to the ending of the world, 
we in it shall be remembered. We lucky few, we band of brothers. For he who today sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Who was Dick Winters? Do you remember the letter that Mike Ranney wrote me? You do. Do you remember how I ended it? I cherish the memories of a question my grandson asked me the other day when he said, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? Grandpa said, no. But I served in a company of girls. And that ended up being just a treasure trove. If you take, for example, the character of Buck Compton, Buck Compton in the book Band of Brothers was reported as wounded during the Battle of the Bulge and be sent back to the rear to an aid station. Well, the real Buck Compton was talking with Neil McDonough, the actor who played him. And Buck said, hey, you know, in the book, Stephen said, I, uh, I was wounded. I, I wasn't wounded. I cracked up. And Neil said, what do you mean you cracked up? He said, look, I've been shot in the ass during Market Garden, and I was in the hospital laying on my belly with a bleeding butt, and I was surrounded by guys who had their legs blown off, their genitals blown off, their heads barely held together with tape and cat gut. I felt like a fool. When I was brought back again, I couldn't take it. So I cracked up. I had a nervous breakdown. I was okay later on, but... In Bastogne, I couldn't do my job. Well, Stephen Ambrose had put that in the book, in the original drafts. And when he sent it around to all the members of Easy Company, to a man, they all said, you are not going to tell anybody about Buck Compton breaking up in the Battle of the Bulge. You take that out. I had a couple of the actual veterans say, oh, no, if he had put that in, I wouldn't have had anything to do with this goddamn book. So we went, <laughs> we went to Buck with this information. And we said, Buck, is it okay if we said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. It's what happened to you. So we were able to have that from the man's mouth himself. And it ended up being one of the prime movers for the character. Buck was a great combat leader. He was wounded in Normandy and again in Holland. He received the Silver Star for his part in taking out those German guns on D-Day. He took everything the crowds could throw at him time and again. I guess he just couldn't take seeing his friends touring Garnier all torn up like that. No one ever thought any less of him for it. The series is just halfway over. We still have another four hours of television to go through there. And we had something that had never even been whispered about before. And that came about from talking. There was one moment afterwards we were putting together the Battle of the Bulge, the Bastogne sequence. And I was saying to the documentary team, I said, is there somebody who talked about how cold it was in Bastogne? Is there somebody who talked about? There's got to be some anecdote about how cold it was. And they couldn't remember offhand, but they found footage of a veteran who just on the off chance happened to say, you know. Even today, a real cold night, we go to bed and I, I, my wife will tell you that the first thing I'll say is I'm glad I'm not in Bastogne. It just shaped the whole episode for us. I can't tell you how often this happened in the course of making it. This story reminds me of something that Stephen Ambrose said when he was asked, why did he work with you? He said, it's because in almost all war movies before Saving Private Ryan, when an American gets shot, it's either in the forehead or in the heart, and he's dead. And his commanding officer can write home to the grieving widow or to the parents and say he never knew what hit him, he didn't suffer. But Ambo said it doesn't happen like that. They do know what hit them. They do suffer. And when you watch a Spielberg movie or when you see Hanks's Band of Brothers, you're going to see that. And that was really your mission, your approach. You don't want it to be pretty. At the end of the day, balls of fire and gunfire and machine gun muzzle blasts and airplanes and rockets, it's glamorous to the eye. It truly is. It looks cool. And it's part and parcel of every superhero movie that comes out. Stuff is exploding all the time and fights break out and 
people are shooting guns. For the sake of entertainment, there is something primitive in the thrill, the point that we go through and have gone through since in some of our brother product is that it's deadly, that vicious and horrible things, grisly things, visceral things happen when a piece of hot metal passes through the human body, that it blows off limbs, that it wreaks a type of inhuman cost that does end up taking lives. And it is true. They do know what happened. Part of it is because audiences are more mature than they were and don't want to be cheated of the actual cost that goes along with it. But an awful lot of times in movies, and look, I can walk you through moments of both Saving Private Ryder and Band of Brothers, where I said, okay, you know, we soft pedaled that. That's not quite what you might think it is. Because we fight that battle all the time, because we don't want it to be glamorous, but at the same time, we don't want to turn World War II into something that looks like a glorified camping trip. In the episode that I directed, in the conversation that I had with Dick Winters, he told me that the memory he had of killing a young German kid in that field in Holland was the last time that he fired his rifle. And it was the last time that he was aware of the man he killed. Because after that, he was promoted to executive officer. He was no longer in command of the company in the field. And this was 1998 when I'm talking to him, 1999. He is an old man, he is in his 80s, and he is still haunted by the look on that kid's face when he shot him dead. So there's the <laughs> there's that double whammy, that great paradox of it's horrible to kill a man under those circumstances. It's horrible to ask a human being to go off and risk his life in that manner. And there is also a horror that goes along with saying your job is to go off and is kill as many of them as you can. There's an awful lot of stuff they will not talk about, and they do not celebrate. But they don't discount the price. They don't discount the cost. I can tell you stories. For example, the greatest soldier that any of these guys had seen, and that was Spears, Captain, and then later on, Major Spears, who was an animal. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Spears viewed his job as a paratrooper to end the war as quickly as possible. And in order to do that, he needed to kill German soldiers. And he did. And there's a number of stories of how he did it that is absolutely bone chilling. And in fact, in episode three, we filmed a Rashomon recollection of what Guy saw him do. German prisoners of war, and they were on the move, and the war was going on around them. And those German prisoners were not going to be making it to any stockade. There is no doubt that something happened. But when we were doing it, I said, we are not going to lay down in concrete fact a representation of what happened. We will lay down the question of what happened. We will say, on D-Day, Spears comes across this group of Kraut prisoners digging a hole or some such under guard and all. He breaks out a pack of smokes, passes them out. He even gives them a light. Then, all of a sudden, he swings up his Thompson and... He hoses them. I mean, goddamn. Gives him smokes first? You see, that's why I don't believe he really did it. Oh, you don't believe it? Whoa, whoa, you didn't see I it? heard he didn't do it. No, 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 it was him, all right. But it was more than eight guys. It was more like 20. Let me tell you, and I, I, in some ways I'll only say this because Spears is no longer with us. When he, <laughs> he was always good friends with Dick Winters. And when we had the big HBO splashy premiere and we took all the veterans to Utah Beach and put up a big tent, Captain Spears did not want to necessarily make the trip because he was afraid, he was worried, about what they would make of some of the things that he did in the war. And Dick Witters said, don't be an idiot, come on. I actually watched both of them, and I saw these old guys sitting in a tent in Normandy, looking up at a big, huge screen, 
watching active versions of themselves land in Normandy and take out the guns in Greek court manner. I will definitely say what we wanted to do was to bring forward the multiple faces of the cost of going to war, of what it does to a human being. And also at its most primitive level, what happens when a hot piece of lead passes through the human body at a speed that is faster than sound. It's a terrible thing to witness and it's a terrible thing to happen. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You asked what your goal was when the series launched and you said to try and put this narrative into human terms, quote, so it is not just a flickering black and white myth that's on some channel on your cable system, but instead is a palpable story that you yourself might think, well, what would I do under those same circumstances? And my gosh, I sort of recognise myself in these men as opposed to just these mythic heroes. I've got to say, when I read that, I've got to tell you, Tom, I spend my whole time, and I watch Band of Brothers every year at least twice, I spend my whole time watching the show thinking with its everyday heroism and self-sacrifice, and I think, oh my God, I could never do any of that. Well, ain't that the point? It's hard to imagine ourselves as altruistic 19-year-old kids. Many of these guys had never been more than four to five miles away from the town they grew up in. And this thing happens, this global conflagration that is without a doubt a battle between good and evil. There were two empires that decided to enslave the world because the world they were enslaving were inferior beings. A theology that says we are superior to you. And so therefore you must submit to us. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a huge problem. That is, that is a huge issue that is laid at the feet of, dare you say it without sounding too jingoistic, liberty loving peoples everywhere. And if you're 19 years old and you're seeing the world taking a turn for that, chances are many of the 19 years old are going to say, well, hey, if I don't do something, who will? If I don't take part in this, who's going to do it? If you're 19 years old and you kind of give a shit, you're going to want to probably be a part of it. But there's a part of, I think, that everybody says, well, look, I'm going to do it at all. I'm going to do it amongst the best. If I'm going to be a part of it, I want to be able to take action into my own hands. And so therefore, I guess I might have to see if I can be one of these guys. Let me see if I can be, you know, in a tank. Let me find out if I have what it takes to fly a plane. Now, you might not have what it takes to do any of those things. And an awful lot of guys got washed out of Camp Tekoa because they couldn't muster up. The next version of this, which was the Pacific, which took on the Marine Corps in Japan, it was missing an awful lot of the marquee elements that Band of Brothers had. The specifics of the characters, as chronicled by Stephen. Everybody knows where London is. Everybody knows where Paris is. Everybody knows where Berlin is. So the map is very, very familiar. But I bet you, you can't pick out Pele Lu on a map or even Okinawa, or Iwo Jima, or Guadalcanal. Where is it? No one really knows. And also the Marines enlisted and became Marines, the toughest broad outfit that there is, without a doubt. But the paratroopers had to go through major school. So even in there, you have that same sort of, well, what does a 19-year-old do? A 19-year-old goes after this. But the issue that comes around with it is part of the glamour of the cinema. Part of what the cinema can do to us is it forces upon us this question. What would I have been able to do given the same circumstances? Would I have been as tough physically? Would I have been able to put it behind me like these guys did? Could I have been as cruel? And could I have taken both the misery? And could I have survived the glory of it? It's almost like something out of Shakespeare's tragedies, his histories. It's all about Greek drama. In some brands, it's hubris. And in other cases, it's, you know, do we curse our own fates? And when our series came out and it was 
massively huge. As soon as you put something out, there's always a degree of judgment that is put forward on it. And you say, okay, all right, so what is the point of doing all of this? The point of doing all of this is this, is that a bunch of guys decided to go off and try to save the world in this way. That's it. And they made a decision and they were all just kids. None of them were superhuman and they did the right things. They did the wrong things. But somewhere in the course of all of that is that moment of can and can't. And every human being faces a moment like that somewhere in their lives. We also became a very, very different thing because of the nature of when it came out. September 9th, 2001. All right, mark that date. We started off being essentially a big television event for HBO. And two days later, we premiered. And two days later was September 11th. We went off. We were not back for a while. And we had a question as to whether or not the events of 9-11 had made us moot had made us a celebration of something that was little more than a museum piece that was going to be a band-aid or meant to be a tonic to a world in which we were suddenly addressing the grander scale and it wasn't going to be a legitimate connection. And I had questions to HBO. It says, should we either continue or just wait till later? Because we didn't want to come out and have some sort of alternative editorializing placed on what we had set out to do. But suddenly, World War III had busted out. With the time that had passed before we came out, we found out that, in fact, we couldn't help but be a comment on the times. That we were not just a jingoistic, hey, let's go get them, shock and awe quality to it. We were actually, I think, talking about two things. One is the long haul that anything like this was going to be, and certainly what went along with everything post 9-11 was a very long haul. But also comes down to that very thing that you were talking about is what would I do given the same situations? Well, guess what? Some of them were all in the same circumstances. We were all part of a home front. There were young men that were going to be going off and doing what their country asked them to do. And there were actually much bigger questions about why... <laughs> Why doesn't everybody accept freedom the same way? Why can't we get along? So the rest of the series ended up being a different kind of viewer experience because by that time, we were seeing something about World War II. At the same time, we were asking if we were not living in World War III. September the 11th forever changed America and the world and the immediacy of war, the unsparing horrors and loss that Band of Brothers contains it meant the audience's immediate embrace of the series was muted when it initially aired in real time. But since then, I mean, this show, the increasing popularity over time, year on year on year, it just seems to have increased exponentially. Tom, how do you understand that in your own mind? I think it comes down to the desire for us all to belong to something bigger than ourselves and to earn membership into whatever that society is. That we seek out like-minded people that greet the day and look at the possibilities the same way we do for each other and ponder the bigger questions of how do we make the world better? I cannot tell you how many letters, emails, messages I've gotten from servicemen and women around the world who say, we watch Band of Brothers regularly to remind ourselves why we're in this in the first place. There's a cliche they always say, both in the series and, and, and in the military, says, we don't do this for the big picture. We don't do this to defeat the enemy. We do it for each other. We do it for the other guys in the tent. We do it for the other guys in the ship. We do it for the other guys in the unit. And even in our series, they all say, the real men, the real heroes, are the fellows that are still buried over there and those that come home to be buried. That's the legacy that is definitely gone after by Stephen Ambrose himself. That is, if you're going to put the most positive spin on all of this, it's going to be, look what can happen when like-minded people get together. That's it. It's as simple as that. I am drawn to that again and again, which is one of the reasons why I study history. 
there are moments throughout history in which impossible things, unimaginable things have come to pass because like-minded people decided to get together and make it so. Now here we are in 2021. This has to come in the face of the other realities. Meanwhile, you have to add the meanwhile, dot, dot, dot. We had this great dilemma that we spoke about at the time is that we were making a series about white guys that volunteered to go off and fight white guys and save the world, in which white guys got together and saved the world. All right. Well, what about the black troops? What about the African-American troops? What about the segregation that went on? The best we had time for, and if you watch the series, and it's in my episode, it's in episode five, we had black drivers of the famous, very famous Red Ball Express driving the trucks that carried Easy Company in the 506 and everybody else in the best. There was one pan from through the windshield over onto a driver. And then later on, as all the paratroopers are making their tail bed jump out of the trucks, the black drivers get together and they light, they literally just pour gasoline in the ground and lit it on fire in order to get warm. And we see that all those drivers are black. That was it. That's all we had the wherewithal and the wisdom or the ability in order to do. So along with all of the other aspects of look what can happen when good people get together and try to make it. So comes this other lesson is that there's always something else that needs to be done. There's always some other aspect that needs to be followed. There are always there are always corrections to it, even though all of this stuff has this patina of victory and success and challenges. It's still not perfect. We forever have to keep weighing that. Even when we can to get into the territory of how some of these characters had great problems after the war, we make hints of that as well. So it's not like they graduated from college with a letter in killing Germans, and then they went back and continued on and opened up their business. Everything was fine. A lot of these guys had tremendous problems. I'll tell you an interesting story. It was airing. It was on the air. It had been on for sometime in November, and I was driving my kids to carpool, and one of my neighbors, actually one of, one of the parents of one of the kids that was in my carpool, came out when I was picking up the kids and he said, oh, Tom, 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 I got, I got to tell you a story. I got to tell you a story. He's a prosecutor from the county of Los Angeles, and he has been. He just retired not too long ago. He said, you know, when I first got this job, I was a young lawyer. I was just out of law school. I was moving up the line. Suddenly, I'm working for the district attorney, and uh, I ended up meeting my boss. The, one of the guys was ahead of things. And, you know, I go into his office, and I see he's got this case of souvenirs, of army helmets, bayonets, and flags, and blah, da, 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 da. And I never talked about it, but I was talking about it. Blah, blah, blah. And then later on, I said, hey, what's with all the army helmets? What's with all the war surplus stuff? He's got, oh, he was in the war. He fought in World War II. All right. La, 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 da, 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 this, that, and the other thing. And later on, he says, I didn't realize it till last night. So watching your show, that's Buck Compton, my boss. <laughs> Buck Compton went out and became the prosecutor for the city of Los Angeles, and he persecuted Sir Han, Sir Han. The man who assassinated Robert Kennedy. Here's a guy that never, hey, let me show you. Here's what I did. I jumped into, I jumped into Normandy. I jumped here. I was in the Battle of the Bulge. There was an eagle's nest. Blah, 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 blah. That kind of stuff is just the absolute high country when you can try to go from ordinary guys to almost mythic cinematic heroes and then follow them back to being ordinary guys again. That's like the great sine wave of existence. You talk about everyday heroes. I have to ask you, one of my favorite YouTube clips that I watch whenever I feel low is you winning the Emmy for best miniseries in 2002. And you and Stephen brought up Dick Winters to the stage to address the world. Dick Winters, who passed away January 2nd, 2011. You actually eulogized him at his funeral in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. With these words, you said, when our days run their course and a man like Dick Winters leaves us, time and providence remind us that human beings can do giant things. Now, after that funeral of a great American original, a man you always called the major, you were interviewed and you said it was life changing to meet a gent like that. Tom, how was it life changing? Let me tell you. 
we had been working. We had some footage. We had had a lot of pages. We were doing it, trying to discover it at the same time, starting with what we have and then dreaming big. And what often happens is that you discover possibilities in the course of shooting, and then you can shape the story in this kind of way. Now, Ivan Schwartzman, who was one of our UPMs, he was very close with the major. Dick Winters had come out to our production offices a couple of times, and I talked to him regularly, as did Ivan. And Ivan took some footage to Pennsylvania to show the major and his wife. They're on their farm anticipating that the man would be delighted by what he saw. He was not. And Ivan said, is there a problem? And Dick Winter says, yeah, there's a problem. What is it? Doesn't it look good? Oh, yeah, the guns are great. And the machine gun fire is fabulous. And all the uniforms are in place. And yeah, all the buttons are corrected. Yeah, 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 that's really great. But there's something missing. So Ivan... Ivan, I, I called up Ivan and Tony Toe, who was also one of our main guys. Tony Toe carries his own weight and then some. He says, hey, boss, you got to call the major because we got a problem. I just said, what happened? Said, well, Ivan showed him some of the footage that we have and he was none too happy. All right. Well, then let me call up the major. Let me call up the guy whose life we are representing, the man whose life has been chronicled his entire military career by one of the greatest historians of World War II in the history of American publishing. And let me find out what he's pissed off about. So I called him up and I said, I understand that you're not wild about what we've done so far. And I had seen the footage and it was fine. And I know how movies make, things get better every chance. We have no ego about this. So tell me in no uncertain terms what your problem is, because our job here is not to screw up the lives of the subject matters that we're making. Our job is not to discern for ourselves what you went through, but to find out what happened and try to dramatize that and make it real on screen. What's the problem? He says, the problem is you have us looking like we don't know what we're doing. And I know what he was talking about, because we have characters that land, and they take a moment to figure something out. And they say, maybe we should go this way, or what do you think, Captain, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to make you land and try to have you moments of sussing out the circumstance and then trying to find out where to go and what to do. And he said, Tom, we knew what we were doing. We knew where we were. We knew what needed to get done. You have it look like we haven't even read the map correctly. And I said, uh, well, I don't think it's that bad, Major, but uh, yeah, uh, let me ask you a few other questions. And I asked him some specifics, and because this was really about taking out of the guns at Brecourt map. I said, Major, I want you to understand something. None of this is locked in stone. There isn't anything that we've shot that can't be moved, changed, altered. There isn't a page that we've written that is part of the golden tablets. All of this is movable. All of this is changeable. There is nothing that is ever going to stay exactly as it is. And in the course of everything else that we're going to know, you'll see how often we make things better and we focus better. And so I said to him, what I sense is, is that what you're saying is that what is missing from the footage that we have so far is follow me. And he said, Mr. Hanks, that is exactly what is missing. Now, what he was saying is, why are you dropping me on the ground and making it seem like I'm not sure of what I'm supposed to do, that I'm untrained, that I haven't studied this backwards and forwards, that I can't read a compass, that I am hesitant in any way, shape, or form? Because I will tell you, that man was not. And what had happened was the guys in the editing room would say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we add a little bit of uncertainty to it and da-da-da-da-da? And to experience that from the get-go, from the very first time we put together any sort of footage, and from the man himself saying, guys, you're getting this wrong. 
that gave us a heading, that gave us a very specific task to, guys, we cannot embellish this. We have to remember constantly that these guys worked, trained, planned from the get-go, and unless they were hurt, and unless they were cocked on the head, and unless they were under fire, they were moving towards their objective. So that one conversation did a lot of things for me, both as a producer and also in that individual circumstance, because what was happening was that people were thinking, well, how can I make this a little different than it is? By the way, their job is to do that sometimes. What came down from up top was your job is to not make a difference. Your job is to hit it on the head as we have proscribed. So that altered things. One of the big things that I learned and one of the reasons that the series sticks to it is that it was the job of everybody was to find a way to make what really happened dramatic. Do not embellish. Do not feel as though, well, that doesn't work, so we have to do something else. So, no, 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 no. Here's what happened, guys. Break it down. Find a way in order to make this fascinating. I don't think they would really believe that this happened. doesn't matter if they believe it. Find a way in order to make it so that it's believable. And we had that happen with moments again and again and again. There's one episode in the uh, village of Foy, or Foy, F-O-Y. No one knows how to pronounce these things, in which Captain Spears ran right through the German lines to meet up with somebody on the other side. And then he ran right back again. And the reason he wasn't killed is because he ran so fast. He said, I don't think they'll believe that. I said, you know what? I don't care if they believe it. It happened, and we're going to figure out a way in order to do it. At first, the Germans didn't shoot at I think they couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. But that wasn't the really astounding thing. The astounding thing was that after he hooked up with iCompany, he came back. And when I talk about the deck of 52 cards, if you start embellishing things, that means... You end up with a deck of 63, or you end up with a deck of 42 cards, and that's not enough. You've got to nail it when you can. Now, when year, when we were at that very same premiere that I had talked about, HBO blew out all the stops. All the veterans had been flown to Paris, and then we all took the train to Normandy and were greeted by little kids from the communities that were doing their little D-Day clickers, so it sounded like it was raining. It was really quite beautiful. Then we all got on the bus, and it was June 6th, 2001. And I was in the bus with Carwood Lipton. And understand, we're taking a ride through the bocage that he himself had walked through at that very time. And I happened to be with Carwood and his wife. And I looked at my watch and it was noon. It was high noon. And we were on our way down to the beach. And I said, Carwood Lipton, it's 12 noon on June 6th. What were you doing at noon on this day, the 1944? And he said, by noon of June 6th, we had taken the guns at Breedcourt Manor and were moving on to our secondary objective of the village of Coulouville. <laughs> I said, thank you very much. <laughs> and I had to pinch myself. Tom, you spent time with these men. Spears, Dick Winters, Carwood Lipton. And I read this recently. In June 2020, there were about 300,000 Second World War veterans still alive. In June 2021, there were now just 100,000 Second World War veterans still alive. And the youngest who served are now around the age of 95. Do you see this story, the Band of Brothers story, actually getting more important as time goes on and these heroes are no longer able to tell it themselves? And what do you believe will happen if we lose their narrative in our own consciousness? Well, the narrative is going to change no matter what, simply because on one hand, we went off and we specifically encapsulated this. So in a lot of ways, Band of Brothers is going to be locked in amber forever. It's always going to be this example of what it is. We're going to come up to a moment when the last veteran of World War II is going to pass away, just like I remember reading of the last veteran of the Civil War died on some very specific day. That is around the corner. I think that if it is proposed to be some sort of a model for aiming for, I don't want to overuse the word accuracy or verisimilitude. which is, let's just call it spiritual, physiological truth to the experiences of World War II. 
there are enough stories to go back and revisit it again and again and again and again, just the same way, you know, there's a lot of stories told about the Punic Wars. Or how often you can watch Henry V or Richard III. Shakespeare had this stuff down. There's always something new to experience. If there is a possible pitfall, is that we become too enamored with them, become too soothed by these stories, because the divisions of World War II were so straightforward. The Nazis were undeniably a hideous people. Let's call it a hideous philosophy. Imperial Japan was feudal, old world. That brand of thinking cannot stand. Now, we see representatives of it again and again. We do. We see that kind of brand of embracing of the totalitarianism. We see that type of shaping of a narrative so that everything is always a protagonist and antagonist. It's always us versus them. It's always we got a raw deal, and these people are the reason that we got a raw deal. I turn to, and I still seek these things out, I'm still reading World War II history to get farther and farther and farther down into the nuggets and the ore of human behavior, of recognizable, present-day human nature that always says, there's 49 people out there that are going to subjugate us. Are there 51 people out there that are going to take them on and say no? That's what it requires. And the good war, as Studs Terkel wrote about, Studs Terkel's The Good War is one of the first books. I read that book, I'm going to say, 30 years ago. Fantastic. What a human being. And I remember for the first time, there was a guy in there. He was in the first wave or second wave at Omaha Beach. And he said, as of June 6th, I was either fighting or marching for the next 119 days. And when I heard that, the back of my head blew off. God. And, and you know, their teeth fell out because the nutrition of a K ration, the canned goods, was so poor that they would be eating this raw, uncooked stuff as best as they could just to put calories in their bodies. And their gums bled and their teeth slowly filled out because the food was absolutely so horrible. And by the way, with maybe a cup of coffee, but certainly not a Coca-Cola, not an ice cold beer, a canteen of water. I'm digressing here, probably doing the same thing that I'm a little bit worried of. Turning it into something that is so honorific and so edifying, and it makes us feel good like comfort food, when what stories of that war and what those men went through and what the entire world went through it should instead give us pause to ponder. How do we keep that from happening again? Who are the people that are going to see to it that we don't fall into that same sort of narrative, which is us versus them, they screwed us, and it's our time. So, Tom, last question, because you've been incredibly generous. No, I can talk about this stuff all day. Tom, I watch Band of Brothers on an annual basis, and I know millions of others around the world do too. So last question for you. Speak to an audience, a young audience who have not yet watched it, and make the case, Tom, what will they see? <laughs> Well, thanks for the challenge. What they will see is themselves. And if they don't see themselves, we fail. They will see themselves in that every day they make a decision. We all make a decision of how we take on the responsibilities of doing the right thing. There's in ways that are large and small. Against a huge patina of a worldwide conflagration, you don't have to shift your focus very much to see that the world is in the same state of affairs, that there is great injustice being done. There are great movements afoot. There are great philosophies and theologies out there that are based on dividing us as opposed to uniting us. Sometimes it's an absolute mismatch of cultures that can never, ever see eye to eye. But in the midst of all of that, comes the reality that we all just have to make this decision. We all have to make a choice at one time. I will tell you, I made this other movie that said it more. It's not even my line. I wasn't even, I, I made this movie called Cloud Atlas, in which at the end of it, someone is being castigated for trying to be a goody two-shoes. And he says, oh, why are, you, why are you trying to do this? It's just going to be a drop in the ocean. Why are you trying to make such a sacrifice? Why are you trying to do the right thing? It's not going to be a drop in the ocean. The line is, well, what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? And so 
I would say that if anybody's never seen Band of Brothers, what they will see is that multitude of drops. They will see a version of the historical document that is nothing more than a record of ordinary human behavior, the type of choices that we all make in the course of the day. When we started, all the actors were assembled for the beginning of a 10-day boot camp training. There's a big saving private Ryan aspect to it. Stephen is there. <laughs> I was making Castaway at the time, so I had this big, stupid, goofy beard, you know? So I dressed them all. I said, look, we're all actors here. You guys are all great actors. All we're doing here is pretending to be these guys who lived a long time ago. But because we're actors, we know how movies are made. We have to do something a bit beyond just the making of the movie. So I'm going to ask all of you to show up every day. Even if you don't have lines, even if you might just be in the background to be a glorified extra, even if you're just going to be part of the visual scope of it, show up and have something to do in your head. Always, always be lifting a pack, always be cleaning a weapon, always be looking at a book, always be studying something, always be sleeping on the ground. Always be doing something that these guys did on the day of what we are shooting. And even if you haven't even been on the call sheet, make some Marmite sandwiches, keep them in your pocket so you always have something to eat, bring a thermos, just hang around. Because people are going to watch this series over and over and over and over and over again. And if they saw you do something great in episode six and they go back and watch it again, they're going to see you in episode one, taking a nap. Or they'll see you in episode two, just walking by in the background, lighting a cigarette for somebody like that. And you know what? They all did. And we even had a whole subculture of the guys who were dress extras that came every day, and they went to a different tent, but they put on all their stuff, and they rode different buses, Sometimes they were 105 yards away from where the camera was turning, but they were moving in the background. And so even all of them did it because we knew that this was going to be some form of document that was going to be so accessible to a new generation of people who only watch things and don't read them. You knew that, Tom, before you shot, you saw me. You knew I would be one of the millions watching it annually over and over. Yes. Yeah, because I already knew that I watched movies over and over again in order to catch out new things. And I said, look, it's going to be history classes taught by lazy history teachers. They're going to say, all right, today we're going to study World War II. We're going to watch Band of Brothers. And everybody says, hey, great. We don't have to do it. It's like, all we have to do, what you do in school today? Oh, we watch TV. We watch a thing called Band of Brothers. We learn about World War II. Even if that's what the job is going to be, you get to be a source. You get to be a participant in the authenticity and the accuracy and the verisimilitude, even if you just show up and decide to take a nap in the background of the scene. And God bless them, they did. So to answer your question again, I think anybody seeing this for the first time will be saying, all right, take away the clothes. This is not a celebration of nostalgia. This is an examination of the human condition. What do you think? What would you do? And then they can answer the question. Tom Hanks. Thank you for what you've done to honour Easy Company, their sense of duty and their memory, preserving it for the world. Well, thank you. You're very kind. And let me say that in representing Easy Company, what we did try to do is also represent the 82nd Airborne and the Big Red One and the Red Ball Express, the guys who fought in North Africa and Italy and Pele Lu and anybody that voluntarily goes and puts on the uniform and serves their country and goes through their training, no matter what they ended up doing, and become part of something much bigger than themselves. And there's no life like it. They're paratroopers. They're supposed to be surrounded. <laughs> that was my episode. <laughs> I directed that. <laughs> Tom Hanks, courage. Thank you. Thank you. What a gent Tom Hanks is. Oh, there could be no finer way to kick off this series. And how would you follow that up, you might be asking? Well, only with one of Band of Brothers' great scene stealers. Oh, that's my own piss, for Christ's sake! That's right. 
the legendary Ron Livingston, Lewis Nixon himself to talk through the first episode of the series, Curahee. We'll discover how he gained insight into his character through a deep bond with the real Nixon's widow. Discuss Herbert Sobel's tyrannical reign over Easy Company's early days and learn why it actually helped prepare them for battle. And also relive the actor boot camp the entire cast went through in preparation for the series. I gotta say, Rod, when I say we drank the Kool-Aid, we drank the Kool-Aid. Make sure you subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share. Taking just a few minutes to do these things will help more than we can ever say. And a reminder, as if you needed one, you can stream all of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Follow along episode to episode, week to week, as we relive that prestige television magic. Until next time. Hooray!